Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today I have on Isa Gucciati, and she is the creator of the groundbreaking therapeutic model called depth hypnosis. And I'm sure that anyone who has been following the podcast is going to recognize that when you merge depth psychology with hypnotism, that to me is screaming Jung all over it. And so when I found out about this woman and what she was doing, I had to go uh, do some research and her bio is incredible. She has degrees in transpersonal psychology. She's studied cultural and linguistic anthropology, comparative religion, hypnotherapy, and transformative healing. And the, the conversation that we got into was amazing. And we ended up talking about like really what is going on psychologically during an initiation ritual and a shamanic soul retrieval um, ritual, which is a type of shamanic healing that's been going on in, you know, tribal cultures for thousands of years. And it was an amazing conversation. And I really enjoyed trying to understand her model through how I see the world. And for people who have been following along with what I've been doing, I think that this episode is going to be really interesting and useful um, especially if you're interested in dancing with psychedelic experiences. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, the two primary ways that you can do that is to please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. That is kind of the central metric currently being used by people that I reach out to to try to get them to come on the podcast. And also just to share whatever feels good and right for you to share on whatever social media platform you dance with the most. And as always, your attention could be in so many different places and the fact that you choose to come here and to listen, it means a lot. And um, by the time that you are listening to this, I will probably be in Costa Rica drinking ayahuasca. So please send me some love. And um, I can't wait to get back to everybody and to share my stories. As always, I love you. Hope you have a beautiful day. Namaste. Isa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm not sure how I found out about your work, but the moment I saw depth hypnosis, I knew that I wanted to talk to you. And after looking around at some of your interviews online, there's something I feel that we can sense in somebody else almost right away, especially if you can see them talk, where if, there, if there's this layer of experiential knowing or just academic knowing, and I have a very deep feeling from you that you have um, a depth of both. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Oh, thank you. The question that I like to start off with is, um, how would you describe who you are and what you're doing in the world? You know, so for people who don't know you, um, what would kind of be that orienting response to give a people an idea of what are you doing in the world? Well, it kind of depends on who I'm talking to, how I would answer that question. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, if I'm just kind of, you know, going to the grocery store and you're, you know, walking along the street, I, I tend to, you know, just kind of be very low key 
you know, and I tend to very much defer to the other person's experience, you know, so I tend to kind of disappear a little bit, you know, and I kind of like to do that because um, it protects you in a lot of ways from people's projections. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so if I'm just kind of hanging out in the world, I just kind of look like this person that, you know, that you might not notice, but um, if you, you know, if you spend any amount of time with me in the place where I, you know, live, which is quite deep in um, compared to the surface level of reality. I think that's true for a lot of us. You know, we have a, I think different people have different levels of depth in their inner world, but I'm very focused pretty deep in. And um, part of that is because that's where I work. I work on the very deep inner levels of the psyche. And um, that's what I'm interested in. That's where I focus. And when I'm doing work, it's the place where I help people try to step into so that they can know themselves in a different way. And so, uh, you know, if, you know, what am I doing here in the world with that particular orientation? I'm trying to help people find liberation. I'm trying to help people relieve their suffering. I'm in particular very interested in working with other healers, other teachers, and other, in, in Buddhism, there's this concept of a bodhisattva, which is mm-hmm. a, a person who has attained a certain level of realization and then returns to the realm of suffering to try to assist. And most most bodhisattvas that are here at this level, as far as I can tell, are very much in training, including myself. You know, I feel mm. like I'm very much in training. But um, I feel that um, I'm very... I find that I do a lot of good when I specialize in helping bodhisattvas and training get themselves unwound mm. out of the misconceptions that they might have had about what relieving suffering was and, and helping them understand a little bit better what relieving suffering might actually be uh, for them, yeah. you know, for them, you know, I'm, you know, like how do they use their gifts and in this enterprise and, and how have they gotten, I often use the word, their panties in a wad, (laughs) (laughs) you know, with their enthusiasm for trying to relieve suffering with perhaps using their own life energy rather than being able or willing to, or even knowing that the, the work that actually needs to be done is for them to be removing the obstacles that they have to the universal field so that they can, be engaged in this enterprise of helping others without attachments or agendas or without terror. <laughs> it can, Which is so it hard. Scary. You know, working, you know, when you, when you understand, I mean, I, I'm not saying that I'm ever afraid, but I, I always, I always have a lot of respect for the ways in which um, people can become disordered and, um, and, you know, you have to have a lot of courage to kind of wade into the places where people are suffering sometimes. So Absolutely. So. Um, How would your closest friend describe you and what you do in the world? 
my closest friend, a pain in the neck. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Just the biggest pain in the neck that ever walked the earth. Because uh, I'm kind of intense, you know, like, I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm a little bit in, I think they would call me intense. I think people generally think of me as intense. And how would she describe what you're doing? Um, trying to help. How would your closest romantic partner describe you and what you're doing? Uh, Mono-focused. <laughs> <laughs> like uncompromising. Yeah. In that focus. Yeah. You know, I'm a little bit of a, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a boring dinner conversationist because I'm mm-hmm. really interested in talking about spirit and the connection to spirit and, you know, uh, you know, the things that, throw us out of balance with that connection. I'm really, I mean, there's so much to learn there. And I, I, you know, of course I'm interested in everything, but if you give me a choice, that's what Mm -hmm. I talk about. Right. How would your father describe you and what you do? My father has no idea who I am. (laughs) And what about your mother? She has no idea who I am. And then say you're in an altered state or it's a dream and you come face to face with what we would call spirit or God, how would that thing describe you and what you're doing? Um, Ardent. (laughs) I think that that would be the word ardent. And how would it describe what you're doing? Um, I do what I do ardently. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to be cagey, but you know, I you know, I, I think, you know, I, I'm very, very devoted. You know. Yeah. What do you recall as your first memory? Um, in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably feeling pretty um, traumatized in utero. And what was the primary emotion that you felt with that? Uh, Fear. (laughs) A lot of fear. Yeah. In in this lifetime, um, as a child, what was the first story either that you saw on a television screen or you had someone read to you or maybe like an elder told you a story verbally that you remembered really connecting to? Because something that I find with children is they will find a movie or a book that they demand be read or replayed, you know, hundreds of times over the course of a couple of years. Um, well, there's a couple, I can answer that at a couple of different levels. Um, I think that, uh, you know, one of the first stories that I was really engaged with were the stories in the hula that I was dancing. Um, and I was put in a hula halal, a hula school at about the age of three which was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, but it, but I had this problem at the time. Um, there was a real emphasis on 
hula is like lovely hula hands, you know, like, you know, a lot of sexualization of women and, you know, cutesy cutesy. And I really didn't, I mean, I didn't know what that was or what that meant, but I knew that it wasn't very interesting. And uh, at a very young age, I was really interested in the ancient hulas, you know, the, the hulas where, you know, you're, you're basically doing uh, a, a dance to the wind or to the sea. Yeah. You know, you're you're making an offering of the of your dance to the natural world, and I was very compelled by that. I was compelled by just there wasn't so much like a storyline within the hula. You know, there was just this is what the this is what the fish do. This is what the wind does, and then you imitate it right as with the dance. And I was very compelled by that. I felt like it really. It spoke to something that was important to me um, because the natural world was always very, very important to me. So I think that that would be one of the early set of stories that were important. Um, I could go on to a couple of others if you want me to. Yeah, please. Um, uh, well, I was very enthralled with Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I went to uh, a Lutheran school. Uh, I was in a missionary school. And so I was growing up in the Pacific, right? So, um, and there's a lot of missionary schools or when I was growing up, there was still a lot of missionary schools, which were, you know, a, a relic of the European colonization and destruction of the Hawaiian culture. Yeah. Um, and, um, so it's interesting because I'm very engaged with Hawaiian culture on the one hand with the hula, but then in this, I'm very engaged with this other force, which was actually destructive to that tradition, but had its own, for me, its own compelling qualities and yeah. um, the compelling qualities, the way the Lutherans were teaching children was that uh, Jesus was this nice man who sat up on a hill and he took care of the sheep. And then he would help people who were in trouble and he could do miraculous things. And that was really helpful. Right. You know, like that was enthralling for me. Like, you know, it gave me this, um, this vision that, that I felt that was possible, you know, that, that things could heal, things could get better. Um, there, there was, there had to be goodness in the world, you know, like, um, and that, that goodness could be applied where it was most needed for help, you know, like that was very, very compelling to me. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like there was at least one more story. Um, well, there was a, a in terms of a, um, a very perceptive there, um, uh, so there's a, in terms, you know, so I was kind of looking around in all the different places where I encountered stories. Well, there's a bunch of stories, but one, another one, um, another set of stories that were very compelling to me were, um, in the library. Um, I spent a lot of time in the library. I was a me too. reader. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like library is like where it's at, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, there was a whole section there, um, we on native american chiefs mm. there were all these biographies of all these native american chiefs and i read all of them within a week 
you know, there was probably 20 of them. And I was just like, who are these people and what are they doing? And I was, um, I was very inspired by their courage and by um, their viewpoint and their kind of even view of, of, of um, like an alternative way of looking at things. And, yeah. and so I was very inspired by that. And um, yeah, so those are some early influences. Beautiful. What are the top couple of biographies that you most resonated with? Because I'm going to buy them on Amazon after this uh, interview. I loved Cochise's. Cochise was a was a big person for me. Red Cloud. How do you smell that? C O C H I S E. Cochise. Beautiful. Um, Red Cloud. Um, um, Black Elk, of course. Um, Wahova. Um, He's the one who brought forward the ghost dance. And the whole the whole thing about the ghost dance was very compelling to me early on. Um, and I was very involved with trying to understand what that was and where it came from and the effect that it had. And you know So I don't know anything about the ghost dance, um, but the and I, I would love to hear how you would describe it, but I'm already starting to see a similarity between the ancient hulas and the ghost dancing. Is there a connection there? Um, not, not really. No, I mean, they're both dancing, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the, the intentionality with the ancient hulas that, you know, you're really focusing on basically praising, worshiping, receiving blessings, offering blessings to the natural world. And the ghost dance was something that was born in the late 1800s as the, Western Indians were the different tribes were basically in total crisis and yeah. getting ready to lose everything. And there was this kind of um, sort of a revivalist kind of vision that Hova had. He's a Northern Paiute. And um, it was that if we return to the ways of the ancient ones, you know, if we forsake alcohol, if we return to goodness, if we, if we abandon the immorality that is descended upon us, if we do this particular dance, which is, you know, anywhere from a three day to a five day dance, it's like a circle dance. We will become invincible to the white people's bullets. We will be able to overcome their, um, their, cruelty we will be able to restore our lands and and so this was like a sort of messiah kind of vision that he had and other groups you know what had been so decimated at that point that they that that they joined other tribes joined and that that idea of the ghost dance um spread like wildfire throughout the West. And it's actually what generated the last of the set of the massacres because the whites became very concerned that the, that the, the native Americans were um, actually becoming more empowered and that they were going right. to have, you know, more agency. And so you have, you know, you know, wounded knee and you have, we have all those massacres that happened there in the late 1800s. 
that basically was trying to stamp out the ghost dance. And it still went on. It still is danced today. But um, it, you know, it had enough power and promise to it that it was threatening to the whites. And unfortunately, yeah. they had a very bad reaction. I'm curious, and this is something that I ask guests to do, and um, yours is probably going to be a little bit more intricate because of the three sets of stories. But what I like to do is I like to ask or invite people to retell their favorite story on the podcast as if they're talking to like a 10-year-old daughter or niece, like it's a bedtime story. Mm -hmm. So I would like to invite you, you can choose any of the three sets or you could merge them together. But if you were um, giving a good night story to a niece and she was 10 and she was smart and she was inquisitive um, and you had, you know, two to five minutes, how would you, what story would you tell her and how would you tell it? Well, I think about the stories that I told my children, right? Uh, you know, we had, we had a, like, I had a whole mythology that we created together I love uh, that. Um, about some kitty cats and um you know they were they were problem solvers you know and they were based we had a lot of cats when at, you know when my children were young we basically had a zoo here living with us <laughs> <laughs> and we had guinea pigs and turtles and snakes and and goldfish and like five cats and you know um you know bunnies and and lots of bunnies that was bunnies really made Made it, made it made an impression on everything. <laughs> they were everywhere, um, and so so they so we would have our stories that were based on all of the creatures that lived with us. And we had one particular cat that was fascinated with water. So we you know we said that she had a water inspection service, and so she <laughs> so she would go to all these different environments where she would inspect water and then she would learn things and there would be a mystery that would unfold from looking into the water. And then, you know, then, you know, the guinea pigs would mm. come along and they would offer some assistance at the crucial moment, you know, when there was the mystery had to be solved immediately, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that was, that was fun. We had a lot yeah, And what's beautiful and what I see there is the, you know, the mythic motif of, looking into the water for the answers. And that sounds probably like um, a lot of what your work is, is to look into the unconscious and see what comes out of it. Would you say that that resonates? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, how would you tell the story of uh, the child you finding her calling and then getting into the line of work that you're in? Um, well, I think when I was little, you know, it was really clear to me that things were orderly in nature, you know, like you know, things were quiet and gentle and beautiful and like powerful, you know, living in Hawaii, you know, nature is so powerful. And so, you know, and I, and I, that was a big contrast for me, um, between the world of humans, you know, the humans were pretty unhappy. They were pretty violent. Um, they weren't very nice and things were not in order <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, the, the first question that I had early on was, you know, how do we bring the peace of nature into the affairs of humans? You know, like what, how, how do we, you know, 
how can we have these two realities that are so different, you know, and, and how can we, how can we make a difference? So that was a really big question for me. And, you know, the, the question, like the larger question is how can things be so disordered when things are so ordered, you know, yeah. like how can this happen? And so I think that, you know, you know, my early years were quite fraught and, um, I, I always had though this sort of kind of a, a, a shining like star of, of the potential and possibility of order and goodness that I just would look for everywhere and I would follow that. Yeah. And that, um, kind of kept me sort of like, it was really like a guiding star Absolutely. quite literally. Right. Um, and it brought me into all into studying things that created or, you know, engaging in things that created order or things that helped, you know, like, uh, and those things were not on the surface level of culture. Those things were within nature or they were deeply within in the esoteric traditions. I, I was very drawn early on. I, after we left Hawaii, we, I moved to the Southwest. Um, I was in Northern Mexico and in Southwest United States for several years. And then we moved to the Middle East in Saudi Arabia. And then I went to boarding school in Lebanon. And then I went to university in Paris. And so, um, I was always moving from culture to culture and, So one of the things that was really clear to me was that different cultures had different orientations toward these different mystical schools of thought. And and so I was, I was really interested in penetrating the mystical aspects of any of the religious traditions where I was. So in Saudi Arabia, I really became interested in Sufism, even though it's not Uh a big part of Saudi culture, but it's, you know, it's part of Islam. And, um, and so I was very enthralled there. And then, of course, you know, living in northern Mexico, I, I had the good fortune to be uh, sort of taken care of by the uh, Weichel Indian ranch hands who were living on the wow. ranch where I was left. So they really taught me a lot about that deeper connection between nature and human experience and how it can be bridged. And that was very enthralling. I, you know, the study of plants. I started there, the study of pottery, the things that bridge um, the natural world and human experience. And so, and then, you know, very, always, I got very interested in the theosophists because I thought that uh, they, uh, you know, they, you know, they were onto something, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I studied that at length and I became involved um when I became involved, the, the, the theosophists kind of pulled my attention because it turns out that I kind of have this, I didn't know what it was, but I'm kind of a natural channel or a natural medium. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a lot of automatic writing and, you know, just getting a lot of information that I didn't know what to do with. And then when I was trying to figure out what that was, and of course nobody around me could offer me any information. around All right. Um, that I was pulled into the Theosophists, which is largely a lot of its channel. And so, um, and what age did the channeling start? Like 10, nine, mm-hmm. eight, you know, 
uh, it was there all the time, but it really like the automatic writing just really took over in my early teens. I see. So, yeah, it was confusing in a lot of ways, but I, there was, because there was nobody was talking about it and I certainly wasn't going to talk to anybody I knew about it. <laughs> right. I didn't know anything, you know? So, um, uh, so, but the, the, the ranch hands saw something in me and they, I felt like they understood me a little bit. And, yeah. um, and, uh, but I, I, um, you know, I really felt very much on my own kind of, trying to find my way through, which is why I do the work now. I really, right now I, I'm in the middle of writing four different books and I've got most of them done. And, you know, like I, I think about why am I doing this every moment that I have? Why am I so focused here? And it's like, the reason is, is because I want other people who are like me to be able to find their way in the world. Yeah. And, you know, if these books or if this work helps them find the path through this very disordered reality, which is much more disordered now than it was. I don't know if you can say that, but it, you know, the, the disorder is much more on the surface now than it was when I was younger. Yeah. And, um, you know, if I, I really like, I'm very dedicated to trying to illuminate and, and, increase the brilliance of that star that guided me so that yeah. it, so that it can guide other people. I really like that perspective that like what you're doing is trying to bring more brilliance to the star that guided you. I mean, I feel very dedicated to it. And so um, keep walking me along the journey. You go to school in Paris. Um, what did you study? Well, I went there first um, to study uh, international relations. So, you know, I was trying to figure out, you know, how, you know, how do we find a culture that reflects nature? You know, like, where do we find this? You know, like, is there a culture that reflects the values of nature accurately? So I was really interested in cultural anthropology. I was studying cultural anthropology. And then I went to Paris and I thought, okay, I'm going to study international relations because that's going to, we're going to find a way to codify this. And then I realized, you know, it's not in political systems. It's in perhaps religious systems. Maybe there's a religion that reflects this. So then I started studying comparative religion. And then, you know, always I was very interested in language, you know, moving around all the time. I learned a lot of languages and I understood how, how when you're speaking one language it shifts your filter on reality and yeah. and so i was really interested in exploring is there a language that accurately of reflects what's happening in nature and so i was really engaged with that interesting so, so those are the things that i've studied i wound up working as a professional interpreter for many years but i was always interested in these questions and they never left me. And, you know, I always highly, highly engaged with the plant world and the world of nature. And I studied herbalism and energy and, you know, this whole thing that I had going on as in mediumship, trying to understand what that was. And so, you know, I, you know, there became a moment where I had a health crisis myself. Um, what age? I was like 38. I was diagnosed with the uh, autoimmune disease. You know, I was like, I was like 
I had, I had a totally successful life from the outside. You know, I had this great children, this great job, this great home, like everything was great, you know, and, um, and, but I was just doing too much, you know? And, um, so I had to stop and take a moment and understand a little bit better what I was doing and why. And, you know, I realized that I, there was some more healing that I needed to do. I, you know, as soon as I understood what therapy was, I was in it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is what you do. Oh, good. I'm doing this, you know? And, um, and so, but uh, then I realized that there was another level of work that I needed to do. And that level of work, looking for that deeper place beyond the sort of talking about things, I wound up back in my, um, meditation practice which had been something that had been with me for a long time and i wound up um, going back to my roots in shamanic practice and really articulating that better and i was able to heal myself of the autoimmune disease and then i thought you know this is what i need to be doing you know like you know i just proved to myself that i can't you know i have shown myself through my lifetime that coming out of great disorder I have been able to organize myself, but there's this other level that I had totally overlooked. And I realized I really needed to understand that level better. So I went back to school, got a doctorate in transpersonal psychology. I sold my translation business and got my certificate in hypnotherapy and started working with people to try to help them. And as I did that, I realized that you know, just straight ahead hypnotherapy wasn't enough and straight ahead meditation wasn't enough. And that even all of the enormously catalytic and powerful healing processes of shamanism were not quite enough. There needed to be a combination of them. And that's what started emerging as I sat down to do a hypnotherapy practice that was primarily focused on, you know, phobias and things like that. And um, pretty soon, you know, all these paths that I had been walking since being a young person started coming together into this amazing thing that kept revealing itself with every client session that I had. And I realized that I was being shown this incredible, beautiful body of work that I needed to understand myself so that I could help other people with it and that I actually had to teach other people if I was going to meet the demand because within my first year of practice I had a waiting list of almost 100 people you know and it was there's no way that I was going to get to everyone even though I was working six days a week and yeah I just couldn't couldn't get to it all so I started teaching and once I started teaching to to engage other people to be able to do this work with others then I, then I really had to understand the articulation of everything. Like I had to really make it clear what all these different processes were, what, you know, what they were referent to in terms of the deeper self and how that would then relate to and engage with the experience on a more social or cultural level and to create change and healing. And so, so that's what I've been doing for a while. how would you tell the story of um how you went about healing your autoimmune disease because that seems like the catalyst for this rebirth of the second part of your life um 
Well, I, I think that really that that's where I started exploring the nature of the trauma that I had experienced when I was younger, when I was, my relationship to the kind of traumatic experience um, of my childhood was to, you know, not let it get me down. You know, I was not going to let it stop me. I was, I was going to create a life that was different, that was apart, that was informed by sane values. And, you know, I was absolutely determined to create that. And that was what I had created, you know, and then, but I had kind of done it without fully understanding all of the effect of trauma on me in spite of all the years of therapy. Um, and then, so it was going into that trauma. And the thing about shamanic work is that it has a methodology that allows you to go deeply into very traumatic situations with enough protection and power so that you're not traumatized if you know how to do it correctly. Right. And the other thing, and, but, but, the, but, but within, but within shamanic work, there's not this under, it's not native or traditional that you're thinking about the evolution of consciousness, right? Like, right. of course you're trying to understand the natural world and you're, you're deeply in awe and in honor of this most amazing teacher that we have, which is the earth. Um, but this idea of the evolution of consciousness, the idea of the transmutation of poison, the idea of the cessation of suffering, that's a Buddhist idea. And, you know, I, um, I didn't talk about early on the influences of Buddhism, but they, they were there early on in Hawaii because I had a lot of friends that were Japanese and Hawaiian. And um, I was always trying to wrangle an invitation to the temple on the weekend. <laughs> I would like kind of show up, you know, hi, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, so, um, but, um, so, but I just, I was very compelled. I think, you know, I don't, it was more of the atmosphere around the temples than anything else. Um, the, the incense and the, the tatami mats, the, there was something that was just like utterly compelling to me. And so I had studied, you know, early on, you know, studied meditation early on. And, and I, um, I went through a lot of different schools of Buddhist practice and you know, trying to find a teacher that I felt was helpful to me. I, and, um, I really found that Tibetan Buddhism was the place where I was most natively at home. And so, and that would make sense because within Tibetan Buddhism, you have the whole Vajrayana uh, piece, which is quite shamanic in nature. And so, and Buddhism um, and shamanism really come together in depth hypnosis. That's, that's where they meet. I mean, right. I'm sure they meet other places, of course, too. But it was the combination of the, catalytic processes to alter the state of suffering within Buddhism and the promise and methodology and discipline of Buddhism uh, in terms of taking responsibility, confronting negativity in a, in a compassionate yet fierce way, you know, that, that um, really became the, the way that I moved through my own trauma. And then that really helped me that really changed everything for me and i find that that changes everything for everyone and you know it's interesting because you said at the beginning that i have a academic and experiential knowledge of my material and that is true but it's so interesting because i was i was doing a class 
online um, focused on trauma called Light in the Shadow through Embodied Philosophy. You can get copies of it on our website or on their website. And the, one of the students uh, in the class, there was like, like 400 people in that class. And one of them said, well, you seem to know about trauma. And I'm like, this class is about trauma. I know about trauma. <laughs> and they were like, but you've been through trauma. I said, of course I've been through trauma. And she says, usually I work with therapists that haven't been through trauma. And I'm like, oh, that, oh, I can't imagine trying to help someone yeah. with trauma who, if you're not, if you haven't been through it yourself, you know, like how, because trauma is so widespread so deep so it's sort of like an earthquake that shakes through the deepest parts of your being you know if you don't know what that is experientially how can you help someone else with that yeah you know and so it just seemed like like obvious like in some ways i felt like i was you know well it, i mean of course i know about trauma it's not a big deal you know i'm not anything special i don't know about trauma i mean it has been traumatized you know but apparently it is you know that that you would be a practitioner and that you would understand the ins and outs of all the different levels of trauma that people can experience. And I had to go through that myself. And in some ways, you know, that's very much the story of the wounded healer that you have in shamanism, you know, that, you know, the person is called to the path through their own wounding. And, you know, I definitely, I mean, that's definitely true for me. And so I think that really resolving, you know, coming out of a lot of denial, I had a lot of denial around my own trauma. And that was like my, my go-to, you know, and that was what was causing all of the trouble on the physical level. Because, right. you know, if you don't deal with something on the spirit level, it moves to the emotional level. And if you don't deal with it on the emotional level, it moves to the mental level. And if you don't deal with it on the mental level, then it moves to the physical level. Yeah. So I had to go back through all those layers and resolve it. So I think, you know, the resolution, the true resolution of trauma. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's always going to be another level of trauma. I find them all every day. I find a new aspect right. of it in myself that I hadn't seen before. But, I, you know, I've, I've gone through more layers than I had at that point anyway, you know. And so did you do death, depth hypnosis on yourself? Like what was your yeah. process? Yeah, I mean, I worked with I worked with my my spirit guides, and they they actually showed me a lot of the processes. And the thing is that depth hypnosis emerged out of the clinical setting, working with other people. So I would see how it was working on them, and then I would bring it in on my own. No, not projecting my stuff onto them or anything like that. But in my own process, I would see, oh, that's how it worked to resolve at that level with them. I'm going to ask my guides to help me resolve at that level with me and so it was it's so you know i was my 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 clients my were my teachers and yeah. even as i was teaching them you know Absolutely. I, you just have to stay like one half step ahead <laughs> <laughs> right, just, just one you, step. Have be, you have to be way far ahead you just have to be a little further ahead <laughs> amen and so I'm curious if if we zoomed in to a specific evening where you were in the midst of doing this process with your autoimmune disease, what would one of these evenings look like for you? Well, you know, I'd be journeying. I'd be listening to the drum. I'd be connecting with my guides. I'd be asking a question. I'd be asking for a healing. 
I'd be are you lying down with your eyes closed, or are you at a journal, like waiting to write something down? It, it um, could be. It, it could be. It could be either one. You know, but usually, usually, uh, because when you're working shamanically, there's two different ways, primary ways to work. One is to move into the spirit world um, through the, you know, through the vehicle of the journey generally, or through psychotropic plants and to move into the world of the spirit guides in that way and interact with them there. Or uh, another common way of working shamanically is to ask the spirit world to come into this reality and work there. And that's what mediumship and channeling is mm. in part. So it could be either way, you know, but for me, it was definitely an engagement with inner guidance that helped me. There, I had some external teachers, but they were mostly academic teachers that helped me. You know, they, yeah. they weren't, I didn't have like a healer that I worked with externally. And that's another reason that I work as hard as I do, because it was really hard for me to find my way. And if I, fi I find if I can train as many people as I can, that they can be there helping other people. Like, you know, we can, you know, it'll be, you know, things will be more evident. You know, the, the resolution of things can be more evident. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you said that the two primary ways that you can enter into the spirit world is one is with psychotropic plants, but the mm -hmm. other one you said is to do the journey. What do you mean by that? Well, the shamanic journey is a method of altering the state of consciousness through the use of repetitive sound. Mm. And so it's one way of altering the state of consciousness. Another way, uh, which is less shamanic in nature, is of course, from Buddhist tradition is through meditation with the focus on one place, usually the, the breath. And so you get your mind to settle, your conscious mind to settle, and you get the, they call it the monkey mind to stop right. around, right? And then you, you move into this deeper awareness, and then you can begin to make inquiry with Vipassana techniques into the nature of your experience. So that's another way. These are all ways we work in depth hypnosis, all right. of these methods. And, and we also work a lot with dreams. And mm -hmm. um, dreams, of course, you know, as a Jungian, you appreciate the value of dreams. Um, but uh, dreams are a huge, huge part of depth hypnosis process. And yeah. Really, um, so really I'm, I'm super curious, like, um, how do you view dreams um how do you play with dreams how do you explain to people why dreams are important i'm, I'm very curious just to kind of get your entire gestalt on what you think and feel about dreams well first thing is i never play with dreams <laughs> uh, dreams are very serious business you know Agreed. like um um uh I, I used to, in, in the mid-90s when email was coming in, um, and I, was, I know I have students that can't imagine a world without email, but um, <laughs> it was a world before email. And um, there, uh, I, I remember feeling very, very hip, you know, that I, I used to give this lecture, dreams colon email from the higher self. <laughs> <laughs> I felt so hip, you know. <laughs> uh, so, and 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 that is actually how I think about dreams. You mm, know, right. Um, so, I you know, the dreams are a portal through which higher consciousness and other types of consciousness connect with your own psyche. 
And, um, you know, I teach a class on dreams where we look at all of the different ways of, in, of, of understanding the wisdom in dreams. Of course, you have the whole Jungian acrobatic, you know, find the symbol and know its meaning kind of thing, which I think, you know, is important. Um, but I really strongly advocate for people finding their own their own symbols their own metaphors right. within the images rather than trying to have you know you look you know if you, you spend any amount of time with a bunch of Jungians they you know like okay so here's you know here's Isadora and that's who that goddess is and you know here's Athena and that's who that goddess is and when you you know and then when you these are the qualities and this is how you apply them when they appear in the dream and when they interact in this particular way this is the way you know it's, it's mechanical, you know, yeah. that's an interesting you know interesting intellectual exercise among educated people. But it's, I, I think that it's, it's very important to learn how to ask, you know, what does this mean to me? What does right. it remind me of? So we spend a lot of time with that. We also look at the way in which dreams um, ha carry energetic patterns and the way in which the, the images within dreams constellate around particular energetic patterns and i try to help my students learn how to recognize that what would be because, an example of that um so a lot of times like a a, a dream that you would uh, a kind of dream that you would use that particular technique on would be a dream where you have a lot of different images. You know, you can have, I call them kind of chaos dreams, you know, where that's one thing, you know, one minute you're on the top of the mountain and you're like, you know, crowing to the sun and the next minute you're down in the mud. And then, then, then your brother, friend, your sister and your father come by on riding upside down on motorcycles. And then you see this horse that you once knew, but its head is not there. And then, and then everything happens all at once. And there's this big loud sound and you wake up and you're terrified. Right. Okay. Right. So, so that kind of a dream that people have, which is, you know, that it's a, from my perspective, it's not as useful to spend time trying to open the images in that kind of a right. dream. The thing that's useful there is to try to track what is the underlying energetic pattern that is moving through this dream that is being evoked by these images. And in this case, you know, the, you know, the sense of chaos and chaos and fear are, you know, right. what, are, what is going through here. So then you want to, so what you would do with that is in depth hypnosis, we have a method for going in on the energetic pattern and the emotion that's associated with it into a hypnotherapeutic process that then takes you through a regression process into the situation, time, or place where in waking reality, you encountered these energetic patterns that you have likely suppressed in mm -hmm. your everyday waking life because they're too much to deal with. But this process of tracking that experience through these energetic patterns will bring you back into that situation where then you can set up a healing through the processes of depth hypnosis that have to do with applying the catalytic uh, healing techniques of soul retrieval and power retrieval, energetic interference release within the regression. And do so, you find that the regression tends to go back to childhood or could it be something that like happened to them a year ago that they've been denying? Mm -hmm. In it can. I mean, in general, you wind up in a earlier time in your life, um, usually before age twenty. 
Mm -hmm. Um, But it could be in utero, could be in a past life. But if a person has had like a major trauma, like let's say they're 40 years old and they had a major car accident when they were 35 and they haven't really been able to heal from it and nothing has really been the same since and they feel a little bit shocky from time to time and they have kind of PTSD type symptoms it's very likely that they're going to wind up back in that situation, I even see. though it's so much later in child than so much later in life, because soul loss and power loss can happen at any time. But generally the patterns of soul loss and power loss, which are the drivers of trauma um, and the results of trauma are those patterns are established early, early on. And is what you find when they get into the hypnotic state, are they doing the soul retrieval for themselves? Because in classical shamanism, the shaman would go retrieve the soul for the other person. But it sounds like in this hypnotic state, some other part of their psyche will go, quote unquote, retrieve the soul for them. And my guess is that the way that that's done is they relive the experience but from the different perspective of the new part of the psyche and does that like how is the soul retrieved uh, you've you've done a pretty good job reading that whole thing yeah um, um, the, the the big difference in traditional shamanic practice and applied shamanic practice which is the form of applied shamanism that I teach is in addition to depth hypnosis um, is that the client is more empowered and the client is asked to take greater responsibility if that's possible. You know, there right. are times where the traditional, the traditional practice is most appropriate because people are so depleted and they need that help. Right. But if they, if they are able to engage and bring that forward of themselves, then they're encouraged and supported in doing that. And you're right, the, um, the first piece of work in an altered state that anyone does in depth hypnosis is to connect with inner guidance, with resources within themselves then, that then act as agents to help with the inner healing. But um, so they do wind up in the situation, time or place where the originating trauma happened and they are assisted with the helping spirits or and we call them inner guidance. We, mm-hmm. we don't ask people to step into shamanic parlance and depth hypnosis. We try to make it as good a front end as possible. I mean, it's right. already a lot with <laughs> their eyes, but yeah. you know, it's, you know, um, but we try to, try to normalize things Mm -hmm. as much as possible. So inner guidance is a nice neutral term. And so with the help of inner guidance, they shift their relationship to those generating circumstances and they're able to bring the part of themselves that is caught in that situation, which is causing the soul loss and the post-traumatic stress symptoms. They're bringing that part back with the help of their guides. They are participating and in that way, it's very empowering because they don't have to rely on someone else being an intercessor between them and their core power. And they understand um, the whole process much better and they're able, therefore, to integrate it better. And from your perspective in the room when they're going through this, um, what are some experiential markers for you to know that they're really in that place 
doing well, that I'm work. Talking to them. I'm talking to them. They're talking. People are talking. I so see. you're guiding them through and they're describing their experience. It's different than traditional shamanic practice where there's just drumming. And right. You're talking them through it, which is another way in which they are staying engaged. So you know where they are. I mean, you know where they are most of the time and you often have a better idea of where they are than they do because sure. you're working with energy medicine and you're yeah. working with other subtle uh, energies. And they're hypnotized in this state. Yes, they're in an altered state. Yep. And you can you can feel that they're in an altered state because like the way that they speak fundamentally changes, like their tone and the cadence and like Oh, their ability to perceive their experience changes. I see. They're able to access aspects of themselves they're not normally able to access. What would it look like if they didn't have the resources to do the soul retrieval on their own and you had to do it for them? Would you articulate the ex their traumatic experience from the altered or from the different perspective to them? Well, generally speaking, if uh, in applied shamanism, we will go ahead and do as you described, where the, the shamanic practitioner goes with the help of their helping spirits, finds the, the part that's traumatized and brings it back. So I would describe that. And often there's a lot of experience that comes around that. And I, if I'm, I, I, I relate it's, I'm careful about what I relate because I, on the one hand, I don't want to unnecessarily put my own experience as an right. overlay to their experience. But I'll say, you know, well, there was this thing that happened. Does this seem familiar to you? Or does, do you notice anything about this that, that is something that you've seen before? And then they'll get talking about it. And then I will offer a bit more once I have them, their perspective open to it, rather than me just telling them a story, right? And then within um, within the, the the integration process, say of the soul retrieval, in applied shamanic practice, we have added some hypnotherapeutic interventions to help people connect with the soul parts that return, or to help people connect with the uh, part the the power that has been returned directly on their own so again they don't have to go through the shaman to have access to that power or to that soul part they establish their own relationship with it and i'm very very passionate about this aspect of both depth hypnosis and applied shamanism because i feel that the most important aspect of healing is the capacity to be able to take responsibility for your own healing Amen. and to be assisted in any way necessary for you to be able to step into that. And, um, and, and because that is the most empowering. And right now at this time on the planet, we need empowered people. We yeah. need people that are not depending on other people other people's power or people who are not trying to get other people's power. We need people who have a clear and um, peaceful relationship with their own power. So. And I could talk to you for so much longer, but I want to respect your time. And so the way that I like to end the podcasts is I ask some word association questions. Are you comfortable answering some of those? Sure. 
<laughs> you have to give me you have to give me the uh, test scores, okay? Sure. <laughs> Word or phrase that captures your life philosophy? Um, liberation, compassion, hope, sustenance. Word or phrase that cuts to the core of who you are? Intensely devoted to spirit. What are you most afraid of? Not being able to have the opportunity to help. What is your most persistent problem? Denial. (laughs) (laughs) Oh oh my God. (laughs) Street smart or analytic? Me? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't think I'm very street smart. Um, I, but then I think I am very street smart. Um, I'm not very street smart. I, I don't understand the culture very well, right. right? You know, so I mean, I understand what's going on underneath the culture, but I don't really get why people are doing what they're doing on the cultural level all the time. Like, I just don't understand the, the attraction. You know? yeah. So that makes me less streetwise, right? Because I don't understand the attraction. Right? You are sewer wise. You know what's going on beneath. Right. Yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. Do you and prefer- I'm pretty analytical about that. So. <laughs> so. <laughs> Slow or fast-paced environments? Um, I like... I like Forward motion, steady forward motion. Rule follower or risk taker? Oh, a risk taker. Yeah, no doubt. Is your need for control low, medium, or high? Low. Are you more intellectually or physically competitive? Neither. Are you more critical of yourself or of others? Neither. Slow or fast choices? Uh, well, I'm trying to learn slow (laughs) because I see, I see the benefit of it, but I like to make choices quickly, but then sometimes there was something that you didn't think about. Yeah. 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 So I'm trying to learn that part of all the different aspects of it, you know, but I don't know. I can get very impatient with that. (laughs) Yeah. Choice and move. Right. Pressure comes from? I think that pr- pressure comes from people expecting too much of themselves or expecting them to be themselves to be something that they aren't. And what does pressure feel like in the body? Constriction. In your community, are you more a queen, a warrior, a magician, or a lover? A servant. It all comes down to service. Success is um, ha- having people discover themselves and know themselves without them necessarily realizing that you help them do that. Mm. Love is. Everything. 
my vision. Is freedom. I am. Devoted to spirit. My purpose. Devoted to spirit. <laughs> the most defining moment of my life. Well, I can say one of the most defining moments of my life um, was, it's kind of long. Do you want me to tell you that? Or? Please. Um, so, you know, as I told you, um, I worked for many years as a professional language interpreter. And language is an absolute passion for me. And I always was interested in, you know, the, the anthropology of language and linguistics and, and, you know, the, the way in which words form your reality and the way in which your reality form the way you use words is just absolutely compelling to me. And so, um, you know, so I'm working as a, you know, interpreter in medical offices and law courts and you know, things like that, but, so, but I'm thinking at this other level, right, you know. But I really always enjoyed the more surface level of interpreting and translation because you help, it helps so much for bridging realities. Like I really like helping people bridge realities, yeah. you know, whatever it is. So, um, so the, one of the most defining moments of my life was when I went to hear the Dalai Lama speak uh, for the first time. And when his interpreter, Jimpa, began translating, I had pretty much a complete and total meltdown um, because, uh, you know, he was working in language pairs that were not my language pairs, but I had a very good understanding of the process of interpretation and translation. And I understood that he was translating not only His Holiness's words, but that he was he was lending his mind to act as a bridge for his holiness's mind stream in order to translate it, to make it available to the Western audience. Hmm. And I, I really lost my, I lost it. I was like, how can a being do this? And I studied that, you know, I, I probably listened to 10,000 hours of him interpreting wow. holiness. And I, I studied, I studied this by energetically, you know, just trying to, for those teachings, that was a five day teaching that we went to. I spent the whole time crying. I just sat in the corner crying because every time that I would come to the surface to understand I couldn't hear even the words, you know, like I couldn't hear the English language words. I could, I was just totally engaged with the energetic flows that Jimpa was translating in order to make the words comprehensible. And, you know, that in understanding the level of depth of understanding that he had to have of the teachings that his holiness was focused on in addition to all of this other experience of basically mediumship, which yeah. was something that I, you know, 
you know, I had been, I, I was always desperate for teachers along this, you know, and he was really the first one. He was an interpreter, but he was, a, you know, like really a profound teacher for me around mediumship on this. So, so that was this, this moment where I, I like everything, everything became very still. Everything became very bright. Everything became like just this very like huge moment. And, um, you know, I, I, I still, I mean, Jimpa actually uh, has become a friend of mine <laughs> because when we established the foundation of the sacred stream, you know, one of our missions was to invite spiritual teachers and artists whose work we felt reflected this stream, uh, which is why we call it the sacred stream, this stream of consciousness that runs through all authentic traditional, all, all authentic spiritual and artistic traditions. And the first person that I wanted to invite was Jimpa, you know, For because sure. he was such an inspiration. So I just called him up one day and asked him. <laughs> And he said, yes, I couldn't believe it. And he came and he spoke um, on, he said, you can choose the, you can choose what you want me to speak on. And I'm like, well, can you speak about the nature of language and reality? And he said, sure. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm like, I, I have, I am a pig in mud, you know, like I cannot <laughs> like get more mud on me, you yeah. know, like, just like, so like, you know, I'm like, a, just like, I'm so happy, you know? And so, we actually had that recording at that very first talk he gave at Sacred Stream on the sacredstream.org website. It's an amazing teaching that I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of times. And every time I listen to it, I hear something new. And um, so, and then we went on to do lots of projects together. We helped sponsor monks from his monastery here and cultural exchanges. And, you know, we, we've done a lot of collaboration. He wrote the forward to my book coming to the coming to peace and um and you know for me like when i you know talk you know i hark back to that moment where i that first teaching where i heard him translate and had that that pivotal moment of my life and then to think about him being such a close friend now is is kind of um i can't believe it you know it's like i <laughs> you know it's like how did this happen? You know, how, yeah. how, how, how does spirit work? You know, look how spirit works, you know, look at this, you know? Yeah. My belief is that, you know, we come into this world with this guiding question and there is a journey that spirit wants us to take. And we have the enough free will to, you know, we can refuse to call, but it sounds like, and seems like, the stories that grab our attention, the people that grab our attention, and these moments in our life that really grab our attention, they feel like they're the hints that Spirit's giving us to follow our true journey. And it sounds like that moment that you saw him speak, it was an archetypical representation of what it is you're trying to do for all of your clients, but also for the psyche itself. And it just seems like you know, we're an instrument. And when we hear that exact note from a different instrument, it just resonates through our entire being. Yeah, that's really well said. Yeah. The last question that I have is, let's say that you're at the end of your life and you know that you're going to die at the end of the day peacefully in your sleep. 
How would you want to spend that last day? Who would you want to spend it with? And if you could leave a single note to your grandchildren, what would you say? Mm. Well, I think I'd want to be in nature and I'd want to be with anyone who wanted to be with me, probably. Um, um, maybe there's somebody who would want to be with me that I wouldn't necessarily want to be with. But I think the main thing that I would be focused on is like trying to stay awake while I'm dying. <laughs> I think yeah. that'd be kind of excessive. <laughs> like, am I going to make this? Am I going to, am I going to make it through? Am I going to like see the clear light? Am I going to like be able to like let go of my attachments? Am I going to be able to, you know, like, am I going to, or am I going to clutch and I'm going to go into terror and like totally constrict, you know, like I, I think, you know, I, of course all Buddhist practice in life is directed toward being able to pass through that crucible of death right. with clarity. And I think I'd be like thinking about all the things that I hadn't done that I should have done that I could have done that maybe would have made a difference, but probably wouldn't made a difference. I'd kind of get all lost up in there and then, you know, just, you know, try to like sit with the stream and not think about anything. I think that's quite a complicated last day. <laughs> and if you could leave a message to your grandchildren, like if you had one piece of paper and you could leave one message, what would be the thing that you would leave for them? Seek peace. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really think I'm going to have you on again. I, I just feel like we have so much that we can talk about. And I'm really grateful that you're doing the work you are in the world. Thank you. And thank you for your invitation. It's been lovely speaking with you. And I'd love to come back on. Just let me know. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care.